So you may wonder what on earth we just read. An ancient text about Jeshurun and the curds from the herd and milk from the flock with which they were fed by their rock and God wetting his arrows and making his arrows drunk with blood and so on and so forth. What, what on earth is this and what does it have to do with us? Well, let's begin with a little recap and, and, and function of this song. Uh, a recap of the, what this song is and its function in the biblical storyline. You may recall last Sunday evening that basically God at the end of Deuteronomy chapter 31 tells Moses to write down a song that he is about to give him. He says the people are going to go into the promised land. Here's where we are in biblical history. The people are east of the Jordan River and they're about to go into west into the promised land and conquer the people who live there and be given that land as God had promised them many years earlier. And God says, I know that they're going to go into that land and then they're going to whore after the foreign gods among them in the land that they are entering, and they will forsake me and break my covenant that I have made with them. So even though God has brought these people up out of Egypt, He's been so kind to them, He's been so merciful to them, to lead them all this way through the wilderness, to give them, as as, uh, it says here in this song, honey out of the rock and oil out of the flinty rock. In other words, He provided for them in abundant ways that you would not expect even in a desert place. He made water flow from the rock that they might drink and he landed quail a few feet deep for miles around the camp so that the people could eat meat when they wanted meat. The Lord has provided abundantly for these people, leading them all the way. We read later that their shoes didn't even wear out and their clothes didn't even wear out as they made this journey through the wilderness over 40 years which was obviously miraculous, right? Like, whether you buy cheap shoes that last a couple months or whether you go and buy really, really expensive, well-crafted shoes. Look, 40 years of pilgrimage through the wilderness, no shoe is going to make it through that unless the Lord has done it, right? So God has been so merciful to bring them up out of Egypt and to care for them this whole way. He's going to keep the promise that He made and bring them west into the promised land, just like he had promised to Abram hundreds of years earlier. He's not going to do this because they deserve it. He's going to do this because he's gracious and merciful. And what they're going to do is they're going to forget about God. They are going to forsake God who made them and scoff at the rock of their salvation. And instead, they're going to stir him to jealousy with strange gods. They're going to go after the gods of the nations that were there before them. Who, incidentally, obviously these gods were not really able to defend these people against the Israelites when they came in war against them. And they weren't able to stand up against Yahweh, the God of Israel. So why would they go after these gods who were obviously and patently unable to defend their own people? Right? This is, this is what God knows is going to happen in Deuteronomy 31. But interestingly, he says, Now therefore, write this song and teach it to the people of Israel. In other words, even though I know that they're going to do bad, I want them to have a song. And what is this song for? Deuteronomy 31, 21 tells us, 
When many evils and troubles have come upon them, this song shall confront them as a witness, for it will live unforgotten in the mouths of their offspring. God wants at a point many years in the future, when they have abandoned Him, and when He's turned His face away from them, He wants them to have a song in their collective memory, which will remind them about the graciousness of God, which will remind them about His mercy, so that at that time, they may turn and come again to Him, so that they may come to their senses and come back to God. This is what we saw last week. And this leads us right into the beginning of the song. What we're looking at today is the text of the song in Deuteronomy 32, 1-43. And this idea that the song was intended to bring the Israelites back to God, this leads us right into the first three verses of Deuteronomy 32, the beginning of the song. Give ear, O heavens, and I will speak. <clears throat> Let the earth hear the words of my mouth. May my teaching drop as the rain, my speech distill as the dew, like gentle rain upon the tender grass, and like showers upon the herd. Remember when this song is for. This song is for when the Israelites have turned from God. This song is for when the Israelites have abandoned the rock of their salvation. But what is the purpose of this song? It's to be like rain. It's to be like dew. It's to be like gentle rain and showers. So that when the grass is brown and dying, when the plants are shriveling and withering, when the people have abandoned God and all life is almost gone, the intent is that this song would be like showers, like rain upon the people of Israel at that time. Listen, the Ritterscard family is plant killers. We cannot keep plants alive. We just can't do it. People donate plants to us. People come and plant stuff in our garden. People say, I brought you some clippings. Let me put them in for you. People give us potted plants. Uh, after a few months, they're dead. Always, without exception. Well, I shouldn't say without exception because I'm about to give you an exception. The exception is Granny. When Granny comes over, she says, did you water the plants? And she goes around herself and she waters the plants. All right? Look, some people look at plants and they see them withering, turning brown, and they say, people like me, let them die. We'll, we'll, get, we'll get plastic ones. Alright? But others, like Granny, say, let's bring this back. Let's bring this plant back. Alright? That's essentially, that's essentially what God is saying here. Let's bring this plant back. When these people have turned from Him and the song comes into its place and purpose, it was written for just such a time as this. When the people have turned, 
and the plant is dry and brown and almost dead, it's as if God says, let's bring this plant back. May my teaching drop as the rain. May my speech distill as the dew, like gentle rain upon the tender grass, like showers upon the herb. This song was given for when Israel is brown and drying up and shriveling and dying. And the intent of the song is to bring Israel back. The emphasis of the song in verses 4 to 14 is upon the goodness of God to Israel. We can distinguish between God's inherent goodness, who He is in Himself, even if He had never made the world, even if there were never any beings but God. God is still good. He's inherently good. He's ontologically good. We can distinguish between that inherent ontological goodness and the goodness of what He does, the goodness of His actions. And it is particularly the goodness of what He does which is in view here in this particular song. Look at verse 4. The rock, His work is perfect. For all His ways are justice. A God of faithfulness which implies relationship and promises and without iniquity. Just and upright is He. What is in view here is the goodness of God with respect to Israel in terms of what He does. His work. His ways. Look at the words used here. Just. Faithful. Upright. This is how God has treated Israel. His work has been perfect with respect to Israel. His ways have been just with respect to Israel. He's been faithful to them. He's been without iniquity. He's been just towards them. Look at the contrast then in verse 5. They have dealt corruptly with Him. They are no longer His children because they are blemished, crooked, twisted. See the contrast here? Just, faithful, upright on the one hand. Crooked, blemished, twisted on the other hand. In spite of the way God has treated them, look at how they have treated Him. And so the question is asked in verse 6, Do you thus repay the Lord? Is this how you're going to treat Him? After all that He's done for you? You foolish and senseless people. This is the statement that is made about how these people have repaid God. But God has created them. Remember the days of old. Consider the years of many generations. He established this nation. And then, not only did He create and establish this nation, verses 6-8, to but He cared for them. He rescued them. He redeemed them. He found them in a desert land. And in a howling waste of the wilderness. This is, I think, symbolic language for their plight in Egypt. That it was like a desert land. It was like a wilderness. And God sort of found them here. He heard their cries as Exodus, the end of Exodus 2 tells us. He encircled them. He cared for them. Kept them as the apple of His eye. Are you going to let someone touch your eyeball? This is the way God feels about Israel. 
No, don't touch. This, these people are the apple of my eye. You're not going to touch these people. Like an eagle that spreads its wings out over its young. This is the way God has cared for them. I already mentioned how He suckled them with honey out of the rock, oil out of the flinty rock. He's given them so much. He's brought them into a land flowing with milk and honey. Or, or He will have by the time that this song becomes relevant and, and purposeful in the history of Israel. He will have brought them in to this land flowing with milk and honey where there was a cluster of grapes so large that it had to be carried between two men on a pole. Remember? Look at how God has given them curds. Cheese curds. Some of y'all find that nasty, but as for me, man, I was, when I was studying this passage, I said to myself, I drove right past Less than a month ago, I drove right past the place where I always used to go in and get cheese curds when I was in Canada. And I was there like three weeks ago. And I could have went in and bought a nice bag of cheese curds from Wilton Cheese Factory. And I just didn't, the thought didn't cross my mind. I wasn't in that headspace. But when I was reading this, I was like, curds, man. Curds from the herd and milk from the flock. The fat of lambs, the finest of wheat. Foaming wine from the blood of the grape. Look at how good God has been to them. But do you thus repay the Lord? The problem being addressed is the ungrateful rebellion of Israel. Jeshurun grew fat and kicked. Jeshurun is just another name for Israel, by the way. Jeshurun grew fat and kicked. You grew fat, stout, and sleek. I find this sort of animal language, animal husbandry language. You think about, for example, the sort of stereotype bucking bronco, the wild animal that kicks, that you, that you need to tame, that you need to domesticate. I think this is sort of the image here in gesturing, growing fat, and kicking. It's as if God has brought Israel into his home like a domesticated animal that God has fed the cat with the cat food. God has fed the dog with the dog food, so to speak. And at some point, this animal, which has been the recipient of so much kindness and so much goodness, it's had all of the uh, accoutrements of civilized living in this easy situation no longer having to be a stray foraging around in skips and dumpsters for food. It's been brought into the home. It's been provided with everything that it needs. It no longer has to wander around mangy and flea-bitten and, and full of ticks. It's been given all of its shots and all of the, the vitamins and veterinary attention that it needs and so on and so forth. And then all of a sudden, this dog decides or this cat decides, you know what? Forget this. I can do this on my own. And it goes back to being a bucking bronco, so to speak. I don't need God. Who's God? This chow in my bowl? Where did it come from? I don't need, I don't need any hand to feed me. This is kind of the language here. The absurdity of a, a domestic house cat now going to try to make it in the wild. Now going to try to be astray and, and, and forage for itself. It's a foolish 
decision, but not only is it foolish, but it's ungrateful. Do you thus repay the Lord who has brought you into his home and fed you and nourished you and cared for you, so on and so forth? This is something like this is what's being conveyed here. That in spite of all of God's care for Israel, Israel has, has gone feral again. Israel has gone wild. Israel has grown fat and kicked. Instead of being grateful and saying, look at all that the Lord has done for me, Israel has started to get this false sense of self-sufficiency that I can make it on my own and I don't need no hand to feed me anymore. God's response in verses 23 to 38 is going to be discipline and restoration of the nation. Look at this. I will heap disasters upon them. Verse 23. I'll spend arrows on them. They shall be wasted with hunger, devoured by plague and poisonous pestilence, etc., etc. I would have said I'd cut them to pieces and wipe them from human memory if it wasn't for their foes who would say, our hand has done this. It wasn't the Lord. They're a nation void of counsel, so on and so forth. God is going to chastise. God is going to discipline these people. God is going to make it hard and difficult for these people. The first thing that we should see is that this discipline is going to be collective, corporate, as opposed to individual. It's not as if every individual was carefully chastised and disciplined and brought around back to their senses and back to the Lord. But in terms of how the Lord is going to deal with the nation. He's going to make it hard for the nation so that some people are going to come to their senses and come back to God. The nation is going to be turned. See verse 36. The Lord will vindicate His people and have compassion on His servants. We know as history plays out that God eventually sent His people into exile in Babylon. But after a time, He brought them back. He made it very difficult for them and even drove them away into exile. But after a time, He brought them back. God's response to this ingratitude, God's response to this rebellion of the people, the way they have repaid His good with evil, God's response is going to be to chastise this nation, but not with a view to utterly annihilating them but with a view to turning them, with a view to bringing them back around. We need to recognize in the context here the grace and the mercy that discipline is. The Scripture tells us that whoever fails to discipline his son hates his son. You're harming You're damaging your son by not disciplining him. Scripture tells us that God is like a good father who disciplines us for our good. We need to remember that the whole context of this is that God knows full well that the people are going to go astray. And He's writing them this song so that when, as a disciplinary measure, He has turned His face from them, When as a disciplinary measure he said, well listen, we're not going to be close if y'all are going to carry on this way. At that very time when God has turned his face from them, they're going to have this song of witness. 
And it's intended to be like rain. It's intended to be like dew. It's intended to bring them back. But what is the substance of this song? The substance of this song is, you foolish and senseless people. Do you thus repay the Lord? I'm going to make my arrows drunk with blood. I'm going to send hunger and plague and pestilence upon you. That's the substance of this song. And that is what that is what is intended to be like dew, like rain, like gentle showers. That these people, when they're all brown and shriveled up like plants that are about to die, that they're going to hear about how good the rock of their salvation has been, just how kind God has been in making them a nation and giving them curds and milk and wine and the fat of lambs and so on and so forth and just how foolish they've been. And that's going to be like dew to them. That's going to be like rain to them. That's going to be like showers to them to water them and to bring them back to green, to bring them back to health, to bring them back to vitality. Consider here the grace of discipline, the grace of confrontation, the grace of rebuke. If God didn't give them this song to live unforgotten in the mouths of their offspring, then when they rebelled against God and started to go brown and shrivel up and die like plants, and God turned His face from them, if they had no song, of rebuke, if they had no song of confrontation to live unforgotten in the mouths of the offspring, there would be nothing to slow their decline. There would be no roadblock set up to keep them from driving off a cliff. What a grace that the Lord taught them this song before they even started to shrivel up. He said, learn this one now because you're going to need it someday. You're going to be brown and shriveled up and I'm going to be apparently nowhere to be found because I'm going to intentionally turn my face from you. But I want you to know this song so that you can remember, oh yeah, God has been so good to us and what a foolish and senseless people we've been to turn from Him, to wander, to stray. And this song is going to be to you like gentle showers, like rain, to bring you back. There is unmistakably in this song the important concept that we would all do well to imbibe, which is that discipline is good. Discipline is gracious. Discipline is merciful. Confrontation and rebuke and discipline stop us from dying altogether. They... they put the brakes on destruction and they give us a course correction back towards health, back towards life, back towards vitality. Correction, rebuke, discipline is like rain that falls upon dying plants and brings them back. And so this is how God tells Israel ahead of time, this is how I'm going to deal with you. I'm going to make it real hard for you. Until you come back to me. Memorize this song and learn. This is how it's going to go. Apart from me, you will die. Apart from me, it will just be discipline and correction and suffering and pain. But come back to me. 
and it's going to be like cheese curds and milk and wine and so on and so forth. What is the growth or the revitalization of these plants, so to speak? What is it going to look like? When the rain has fallen upon Israel, when they're brown and shriveling and this rain falls upon Israel, and they hear this song unforgotten in the mouths of their offspring, when they rehearse this song and they say, yeah, the rock, the God of our salvation, let us go back to Him. What is it going to look like when they are revitalized, when they grow? There are two verbs which I think are key to seeing what that process of turning will look like. The first one is see in verse 39. And the second one is rejoice in verse 43. When the Israelites hear this song rehearsed at the time when they need it most, when they're brown and shriveling and wandering from God, and they are reminded that God has been very good to them and they've been foolish and senseless, and it's God who has been disciplining them, but even now He's ready for them to turn, and that rain may fall on them and dew may fall on them and that there may be a coming back around and when they see the heart of God not to cast them off altogether but to bring them give them a song to bring them back they will see God verse 39 there is no God besides our rock what fools we have been to exchange the living God for Johnny-come-lately gods that are no gods at all. We see now that He, even He, is He. And there is no God besides Him. Verse 39. God kills and God makes alive. God wounds, God heals. There's none that can deliver out of God's hand. God is sovereign. God is the one who lifts up and God is the one who casts down. Let us go back to Him. There will be a seeing rightly again instead of the seeing wrongly that has led them to worship false gods. And then verse 43, rejoice. It says, rejoice with Him, O heavens, and bow down to Him, all gods. But this is figure of speech for really all of creation. Rejoice at who God is. Not only see who God is, but rejoice at who God is. Specifically as the one who avenges the blood of his children. and takes vengeance on his adversaries. As the God who repays those who hate him. When they have come to their senses, they'll see who God is. They'll see that God is prepared to take them back. That God is prepared to rescue them again and take vengeance on his enemies. And this will be grounds for their rejoicing. And in the very last line of this song, God is a God who cleanses His people's land. They will realize, man, God is so good that He has given us this song to cleanse this land. That He is a God who isn't content to just let us 
shrivel up and die, but to bring us back around. So they will see and they will rejoice in God who is the true God, who rescues and renders recompense on his enemies and cleanses his people's land. In the 21st century then, what does this have to do to us? Have to do with us? Well, obviously, we're not the old covenant Israelites who are about to go into the promised land and are about to rebel against God and then go into exile from the Babylonians and then be brought back into the land and have the temple rebuilt and whatnot. Obviously, the situation differs somewhat, but I don't think it's really that hard. It's not rocket science to see how this is relevant to us. It's the same God who is their God, who is our God. And God will discipline us when we wander from Him. But God is a God who is always willing to have us back. As we saw last week, drawing a connection between this narrative and the parable of the prodigal son. When we're in the pigsty and we realize, man, we've really messed up and we wonder if we can go home. Both Luke 15 and Deuteronomy 32 tell us that, yeah, we can. That even when we're brown and shriveled up and dying plants, that God is prepared to, to shower us and to drop dew on us and to restore us from health. The Father is willing to run to the end of the driveway and meet us as we return home. And obviously all of this is through Christ. It's not like we deserve to go home. It's not like we deserve for God to receive us back. It's not like God would be unjust to reject us. Say, no, nah, man, you don't deserve it. You blew it. You made your bed, you got a lion. But God sent His Son, Jesus, into this world to seek and to save the lost. Jesus didn't come into this world to condemn the world. Because the Scripture tells us we were condemned already. But He sent His Son into the world to save. So loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. That whosoever believes in Him will not perish but have everlasting life. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If we do sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. On and on and on and on we could go with all of these examples of how God has made provision for our restoration, for our forgiveness, in spite of our sin. God does not love anyone because they are righteous enough for Him. God does not accept anyone as sons and daughters because they're good enough for Him and they've impressed Him. That's not how Christianity works. God has sent Christ Jesus into this world to seek and to save the lost. So that when people say, yeah, I'm lost... I need forgiveness. I need grace. They'll find what they need in Jesus. He lived a righteous life in our place. The life that we ought to have lived but did not. So that we could 
take hold of his righteousness and wrap it around us like a garment and say, I'm not righteous, but Jesus is, and I'm clothed with his righteousness. Jesus came to die the penalty-bearing death on the cross that really, by rights, we deserve to die. That we deserve to have God's wrath poured out on us, but Jesus substituted himself in our place for the wrath that we deserve. So that when, when we who are guilty, who have really no right or basis in ourselves to go to God and say, please accept me. We can lay hold of Christ's righteousness and Christ's propitiatory death. We can say, because of Jesus, be gracious to me. And the scripture tells us all the way through from Genesis to Revelation that God is willing to receive sinners. He's willing in the first place. And even when we've come and been saved, but then wander and backslide and end up in a pigsty of sorts, we can always go home. God is gracious to us in Christ and willing to have us back. He will discipline, He will confront, He will rebuke, but it's always to turn us because God wants us back. He wants us to come home. This is the kind of God that God is. Not just in the New Testament, but the Old. Not just in Luke 15, but in Deuteronomy 32. He gives us teaching all the way through the Scripture that distills like dew and falls like gentle showers upon the sinning, self-destroying soul that has become brown and shriveled up like a plant that so desperately needs this confrontation and rebuke and grace and truth.